Hello, and welcome to Co-OpCast, your one-stop shop for co-op news and reviews. This week, hold on to your socks, because we've got a special episode. Hi, this is Peter, and I'm here to introduce you to a special episode. This week, we are going to take all the audio files from Mike's 5 and 5 series on YouTube and put them here for you to listen to in an audio format. If you haven't heard of Mike's 5 and 5 series before, basically he uses our same general format of looking at the top five things about the game and then giving his final impressions afterward, but he's doing it in a quicker format. So there's not going to be as much discussion, there won't be a design discussion afterward, but it is a nice quick format. So I hope you enjoy. If you do enjoy these, head over to Colin's YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop to actually see Mike and he gets dressed up in costumes each week, so I actually recommend you doing that if you haven't been over to see the series on YouTube yet. It's pretty hilarious. But for now, enjoy the audio version of Mike's 5 and 5. Hi, I'm Michael Kelly, one half of MVP Board Games. We've designed several games, most of them cooperative, but in this review series I'll be looking at games by other designers, some amazing and some not so great. The series is called 5 in 5 because I'll be discussing the 5 most important design decisions or elements about the game, and each of the videos will take about 5 minutes. For each of these discussion points, a little banner will pop up like this one, identifying whether the element being discussed is a pro, a con, or a bit of a mix. I'll count them down from five to one, ending with the most important element for your potential enjoyment of the game. Then I'll end with my final thoughts, identifying who the game might be a really good fit for. I hope you enjoy the videos. Please leave your comments and let us know which games we should cover next. Good gaming, everyone. Harry Potter is an incredibly successful and creative franchise that sadly has spawned a lot of lackluster games. USAopoly tried to change that when they released Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle, a cooperative deck building game. So is it an innovative and amazing deck builder, or is it more of a thematic cash-in? Let's find out and discuss Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle. House dice are introduced in Book 4. At first, they seem pretty cool. How many deck builders let you roll dice to have a result? But they're not as interesting as they seem at first. They have the exact same effects as the other cards in the game, so don't actually provide unique abilities. It gets worse in Book 7 when you have to deal with these Horcrux cards. Each of them needs a specific result from a die to defeat it. And if you roll the wrong result on your die, you have to wait until the card cycles back through your deck to be able to play it again. Sometimes the marketplace doesn't even have cards to provide dice available, so you're stuck buying stuff that's useless to you to actually win the game, making the dice somewhat fun, but also pretty frustrating in the late game. A very positive choice in the game is the inclusion of tokens for attack and influence, the main things cards give you. In most deck builders, you have to keep track in your mind of the money and the attack you get, and it can be somewhat frustrating. 
These tokens solve that by letting you place them on your character sheet as you play cards for their effect. It also has cards that give tokens to other players, providing a cooperative benefit that most deck builders don't really attain. One of the most exciting design choices in the game is to divide it up into games, just like the books in the Harry Potter series. And you get to open each one up, kind of like a little mini expansion. Gilderoy Lockhart, he was so annoying! I hate you. A negative side with the deck boxes, though, is that they never remove cards from the marketplace or the villain deck. So the villains can get really thick and lengthen the game severely. Additionally, for Harry Potter fans, you'll see some unthematic villains and allies pop up from time to time, if you know the stories well and know those characters no longer have a part to play. I'm down to only two points left in this review, and I haven't answered one of the big questions. Is this an innovative deck builder? Does it have random turn order and no shuffling of your deck to build big combos like Aeon's End? Uh, no. Does it have intense tactical combat and baked-in cooperation like Battle for Greyport? Yeah, no. Does it at least have a way to take cards out of your deck and build combos like every deck builder ever? <laughs> no. The marketplace gets really crowded with cheap or overly expensive cards sometimes, and even an official variant to discard all the cards once per game isn't enough to solve it. On top of that, your player deck gets super bloated from having to buy these cheap cards, and without a culling mechanic, there's no way to build combos, and it's really a dull deck builder overall. The final point I'll discuss with Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle unfortunately takes the game from mediocre to actively frustrating. One of the key design points in any good cooperative game is that the tension ramps up over the course of the game, and that you need to work harder and harder as the game ends to build to that epic win. Harry Potter attempts to follow this core rule by using location cards and dark arts cards. Locations will tell you how many dark arts cards to draw per turn, and as you add control tokens from these dark arts effects, the location will slowly be taken over, and when you advance to the next location, you'll often have to draw more Dark Arts cards per turn, giving you a ramp up. It seems to work. However, the game chooses to include many cards like this one that have an effect to remove an entire token and are often ridiculously undercosted. You have the potential to remove all the control tokens and never even advance beyond the initial location with one Dark Arts card per turn. This completely takes away the tension of the game. The designers of Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle did a great job making an accessible deck builder. I've played this with my five-year-old and had a ton of fun. That being said, if you're not going to play it with new deck builders or with children, I don't recommend this game for fans of the deck building genre. There's not enough going on here. In the later books, it gets very long and very bloated, and you're really going to miss the ability to fine-tune your deck and call cards from it. So unless you're playing with little kids or with big fans of Harry Potter or just want to introduce somebody to deck building and then build to better games, I would say you should pass on Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle. Great gaming, everybody. Superheroes are selfless and sacrificing, an inspiration to us all. That is, unless you live in the world of The Reckoners, where superheroes are evil dictators ruling the Earth. It's up to us, the regular people, to take them down. Let's discuss five things about The Reckoners. The Reckoners is a game of dice management. 
You're trying to defeat minor supervillains in the city, called Epics, to work your way up to defeating the big boss, Steelheart. On your turn, you roll your dice three times, keeping at least one die each time, and re-rolling the rest. You then resolve your dice in the order you choose, gaining money, damaging epics, taking out enforcement miniatures, and moving to other locations. This dice rolling takes place simultaneously, with players helping each other out and cooperating as they choose. Then, after an upgrade phase, each of the epics activates their current available actions, followed by Steelheart activating and putting a lot of obstacles in the player's way. If the players can fully research Steelheart's weaknesses and defeat him before the population of the city is reduced to zero, they win. First, I'd like to talk briefly about the component quality. It's generally great. The boards are excellent, with space to hold every component you use in the game. The cards are good quality, and the illustrations are generally superb. The miniatures won't blow you away, but their quality is fairly decent. And everything, including the custom dice, stores wonderfully in the custom inserts in the game's large box. The only reason this isn't a full pro for me is because all that production value has a cost. The MSRP for this game is $100, and that's a lot for a fairly simple dice game. A straight-up pro for me is how the game handles upgrading your characters. At the end of each turn, you get to spend any money you've earned on custom upgrade cards for your characters. These can let you change some dice results to other results, give you extra dice to roll, give you free results, or even double the effects of some dice. My favorite part of the upgrades is that very few of them give you extra dice. Instead, they make the dice you have more consistent or more effective. This means the turns continue to be fast even while you're crushing the game. We have another mix at number three, and this one relates to the main enemies in the game, the epics. While each of the epics does have a unique action line, they don't feel all that different since most of them either upgrade Steelheart or damage the city. It does feel like there was a missed opportunity here, when they could have given each of the epics a unique power matching their abilities. That being said, I really enjoy the way epic damage is handled. Each epic has both a research line to figure out their weakness, basically their kryptonite, and a separate health line. If you can reduce their research line all the way to zero, their health automatically drops to a lower value, giving you an easier way to finish defeating them. Some epics can't even be hurt until you fully research their weakness. You can also avoid defeating them at all, instead pushing back the actions that they're going to execute each turn to make them less effective. This gives you lots of fun choices. Do you contain them, research them, or just blast them? It's your call. My second to last point is another pro, and that's that the turns in the game are simultaneous. Like Spirit Island, another simultaneous co-op, this drastically increases the game speed while also increasing the chances for cooperation. I can make my first roll, see that I didn't get any research, and check with my partner to find out what they got before I decide which dice to keep and which to re-roll. Even in a six-player game, which The Reckoners does play up to, gameplay is still very fast because of this. There are very few co-ops that play six players well, so it's definitely a selling point for this game. But the best thing about the game is how the dice are used and how powerful they make your characters feel. In a lot of dice rolling games like Thanos Rising or Elder Signs, your success is all or nothing. If you don't get the results you need, your turn is wasted. 
But because each die in the Reckoners is its own separate effect, nothing is ever wasted. Each turn becomes a bit of a tactical puzzle as you figure out the ideal way to use each of your dice to affect the game board. It's a bit of a brain burner that doesn't actually take that much time. A winning combination. All of this makes you feel awesome, like you're chalking up wins and taking down bad guys every turn. The Reckoners is a great dice-chucking co-op, with fast-paced gameplay and really interesting tactical decisions. I've played it with casual and serious gamers, and while the game is very fast to teach with fairly simple rules, the gameplay is deep enough to keep everyone engaged. That being said, the lack of variety in the epics and the very high price tag of $100 MSRP mean the game might not be for everyone. But if you're looking for a co-op that can play six players in not too much time, The Reckoners is a great choice. Because of the simultaneous turns, this is a rare solo game that actually takes longer to play than it does multiplayer. It can be a little bit of a brain burner to switch your attention from character to character, but it also adds a lot to the tactical puzzle in solo play. I've played with both two and three characters in solo play. Two works great, and three is good too, although the puzzle becomes just slightly on the complicated side and a little bit more to keep track of. All that being said, I had a lot of fun playing The Reckoners solo, and I would definitely recommend it, again, if you can handle the MSRP. We all love the Marvel Extended Universe, right? My favorite thing is how the heroes work together to take down the bad guy. But oddly enough, most board games based on Marvel properties have either been fully competitive, like Marvel Heroes or Dice Masters, or semi-cooperative, like Marvel Legendary. Thanos Rising is here to blow them all away with true cooperative gameplay. The question is, is it any good? Let's find out and discuss five things about Thanos Rising. All players control one hero at the start of the game, with a dice pool of four dice. The active player starts their turn by placing their token on one of three sectors, with three cards, a mix of heroes and villains, attached to it. The active player rolls two dice for Thanos, determining whether he turns in a different direction, attacking all the heroes and activating all the villains there, and also which Infinity Stone he adds one token to, to bring himself closer to controlling it. The active player then rolls their dice. They have to put at least one die on on a character that has a symbol that matches, or discard a die if they cannot do this. They can place more than one die at a time, but must all be on the exact same character. They then re-roll all the remaining dice, and continue until they run out of dice, or can accomplish nothing else. When all their dice have been placed, heroes are recruited, or villains are damaged if the dice fully match all of their token results. If you can defeat seven villains before Thanos captures all six Infinity Stones, or defeats too many heroes, you win the game. Unfortunately, the game starts with a con, and that's the general fiddliness of keeping up with the cards and tokens in the game. Early on, with only one hero and four dice, it's easy to keep track of what's going on in the game and to track damage. And in the mid to late game, when you can have six or seven or eight heroes on your team, and when Thanos and many of the villains deal damage to every single hero you have, just placing tokens on everyone can take a long time also, the game doesn't come with enough dice to accommodate especially three or four player games, so you'll have to pass the dice to the other players, 
and it can take a little while to build your dice pool for every turn, especially when you have a lot of heroes. Additionally, as you increase your dice pool, your turns will end up taking quite a bit longer, which combined with the token manipulation does lead to a bit of a downtime problem, especially with three or four players. Now some of that downtime is addressed by my next point, a pro, which is how the game gives you reward tokens for damaging villains. You receive one token every time you damage a villain, and they give you basic effects like healing heroes, rolling extra dice, taking stones away from the infinity stones, and getting free results. The most important thing about these tokens is that they can be used on other players' turns, adding a little bit of cooperation to the game. The dice in this game are great, especially because they're so predictable. Each of the colored dice has a symbol they're associated with that they roll 50% of the time. The red die rolls more hits, the black die rolls more planets, and they each also have a doubler side for their associated symbol. This adds a bit of tactics to the game, because you can look at the dice in your pool and let that help you decide which card to target. Additionally, some heroes give you a choice of which die they'll provide for you. These abilities are fairly rare, but they add a little bit more strategy and tactics in the game, thanks to the predictable dice. Sadly, after a few pros, I'm back to a con. And that's how the villains come out of the deck. There are 42 cards in the game, and you start with three dealt to each sector. Because the heroes and villains are shuffled together, this can lead to some really swingy results. If you start with a lot of villains on the board, it's almost impossible to gain the momentum you need to do well in the game, especially with them attacking heroes so much more frequently. The swinginess is increased because you start with only four dice, and if the first couple of cards you get don't give you more, you're going to have a really hard time being effective in the game. All of this contributes to the game being very swingy, and sometimes feeling a bit out of your control. But the swinginess gets even worse. Like in another dice game, Elder Sign, getting a card is an all-or-nothing affair. If you can't fully match their symbols, you get nothing for your turn. Now in Elder Sign, you have cards right at the start to help mitigate this and give you extra dice if you choose, but in this game you only have four dice and no mitigation whatsoever at the start of the game. So it's fully possible that you'll waste one or more turns not rolling the right results and not accomplishing anything on your turn while still being damaged by Thanos and the other villains. The fact that downtime can add up and sometimes your entire turn is wasted is a one-two punch that brings the game down significantly. I'm sorry to say it, since I love the Marvel Extended Universe, but I find Thanos Rising to generally be a frustrating game. Even when I had a bunch of heroes on my team and lots of tactics available to me, I still never really felt the game was too exciting or fun. A final nail in the coffin is that the hero powers often don't match their theme very well. The Hulk gets stronger as he gets angrier, but Mantis and Groot have the exact same healing power. Not very thematic. If you're looking for a great game that makes you feel like a superhero, I'd steer you more towards something like Sentinels of the Multiverse. Even if you're a Marvel fan, I would recommend that you should probably pass on Thanos Rising. The game works fine in Solo, but honestly, the theme and tactics and puzzles aren't that engaging, and the game can really drag, especially as one person having to deal with all the fiddly bits and health tokens. So, I wouldn't really recommend Thanos Rising as a great Solo game, either.
Everybody loves an adventure. Descending into dark dungeons with your trusty companions and a sharp blade. That might be why players have been requesting that Thunderstone be turned into a cooperative experience since the game was created. AEG finally listened. And on their Kickstarter currently running, they have not only a reprint of the base game, but also a new Barricades mode that allows both cooperative and solo play. I tried out the print and play available in the Kickstarter, and I'm here to tell you whether or not Cooperative Thunderstone was worth waiting for. In barricades mode, one to six players play simultaneously. First, they each roll custom 12-sided dice equal to the threat level of the guardian. These dice will mostly wound the heroes and add monsters threatening the town. Each player then gets to spend the gold in their hand to buy items in the town. Players end each turn by fighting in the dungeon, either going together as a party or fighting monsters individually. If they fail to defeat enough monsters to remove the monster token, placed at the beginning of the turn, those tokens are then randomly assigned as damage to the village. The players need to survive until the Guardian's threat level advances to the back, making him vulnerable to attack, and then deal enough wounds to him to defeat him for good. If they can accomplish this before the town is fully destroyed, they win. The first change I want to discuss is the combined village and dungeon turn. In competitive Thunderstone, players had to look at their hand and decide to either go to the village or the dungeon, except for certain special effects. But in barricades mode, they've streamlined this so you first go to the village and then to the dungeon on every one of your turns. This does tend to make the game go a little bit faster, but at the same time, it removes one of the tactical decisions from the game. Making the move to simultaneous play is generally a good thing. Downtime was a problem in Thunderstone Quest, and this speeds up the game considerably. I also like the party system, with players choosing whether to adventure alone or as a party. It adds some cooperative discussion to the game. Additionally, players can lend each other cards for the turn when they're in a party. Simultaneous play also limits cooperation a bit. Village turns tend to be automatic affairs, so players won't discuss them much. And it's often generally obvious which monsters can be defeated or not, so there isn't actually much tactical choice in the simultaneous play. I really enjoy the Guardian dice and how they ramp up the game. At first, each player is only rolling one, but as the threat level increases turn to turn, they really add up. Each Guardian has unique effects that make their die rolls a little bit different. Additionally, one face on each die will trigger a special effect unique to that player. This does make the dice fairly swingy, but can also be a lot of fun. I also like how the dice add monster tokens to the village. Some turns there won't be many, and it won't be that important to fight large monsters. Other turns the town will be facing a major threat, and it'll force you to fight monsters you might not be comfortable with. Something I haven't mentioned yet that I like a lot are the prestige boards. First, they each have little goals you must complete to level up, giving you some direction as you play the game. When you complete these goals and spend experience, you get bonuses that persist for the entire game. This gives you some hard choices of whether you spend your experience on prestige boards or leveling up your heroes. Sadly, I'm ending on a down note, and that's that many elements from competitive Thunderstone Quest are either thrown out or unbalanced in the cooperative variant. First, cards you add to your deck often have a victory point value at the bottom. This balances the card, making some weaker cards more worthwhile because they'll help you in the end game. But because the cooperative mode throws these victory point values away, making them useless, the cards are not as balanced as they were in the competitive game. But most frustrating are the location actions. 
In competitive Thunderstone quests, the Temple, the Shop of Arcane Wonders, and the Guild Quarters were all viable options, giving you a tactical choice every village turn. But because the Temple takes away the ability to go to the dungeon fully half of your turn, and because the Guild Quarters makes you discard two heroes from your hand, weakening your attack, neither of them is a good option in the cooperative game. You're pretty much always going to go to the Bazaar, and that again limits the choices you have in the game. I really enjoy competitive Thunderstone quests. The addition of side quests, faster leveling, and a physical board are all great improvements on the game. But I don't feel as positive about Barricades mode, at least the way it's currently balanced in the print and play. It works okay and games go pretty quickly thanks to the simultaneous play. But they removed a lot of tactical choice from the game and also didn't do as careful a job of balancing the elements as I wish they had. If you're interested in Thunderstone Quest for both competitive and cooperative play, I think the current Kickstarter is a really good deal. But if you're planning to only play the game cooperatively, I think there are much better options out there, like Aeon's End or Battle for Greyport. Interestingly, I really enjoyed Thunderstone Quest Solo, much more than playing it cooperatively. Gameplay was super fast, and playing through different quests with different puzzles to figure out was a lot of fun and pretty addictive. I played three games in a row, and I was hungry for more. I still don't think it's balanced enough to buy the game just for the solo experience, but if you're into playing it competitively as well, solo is surprisingly fun. From Settlers of Catan to Puerto Rico, there are tons of prominent board games that feature an island being civilized by invading forces. Greater Than Games wanted to ask the question, what if the island fought back? Let's discuss five things about Spirit Island. You play Spirit Island on a board made up of one map per player and seeded with enemy settlements and allied Dahan natives. Players take their turns simultaneously, beginning by choosing one of their spirit's growth options, which will place presence on the board allowing them to use powers, and often increase either their energy income or the number of cards they can play per turn. They then select the power cards they'll play for the turn, paying their cost if any. Some cards are fast and will activate immediately. The invaders then take their turn, ravaging some land types, defeating Dahan there and blighting the land, building new settlements in other land types, and then sending out explorers to repeat the process. The players then resolve any slow powers they've played for the turn and discard all cards used for the turn. If the players can defeat enough of the invaders before too much of the land is blighted by industry, they win. I've reviewed several simultaneous play co-ops recently, and I'm loving this speedy trend in gaming. That said, Spirit Island does it better than most. Because each player begins on their own separate board with limited range on their powers, they can generally focus on the problems facing them on their map. This reduces analysis paralysis and speeds up the game. But as the game progresses, players will be able to extend their presence to their neighbor's maps. This slowly ratchets up the cooperation and creates creates more of a tactical puzzle as the game progresses. Another fun mechanic in the game is how it handles fear. Players have a pool of fear tokens. As settlements are defeated and card effects are resolved, the tokens are moved down to generated fear. When all the fear has been earned, it's moved up and one fear card is moved down, ready to be activated later in the turn. And when three fear cards have been earned, 
the terror level for the game increases. Increasing the terror level both makes the victory conditions for the game easier and also levels up the powers of the fear cards you earn. The fear cards themselves are a lot of fun. Since you never know what effect they have, they give a random boost to your strategy. My next pro is how tactically rich the gameplay is. The invader actions are telegraphed multiple turns in advance, giving you time to defeat them. The tactical puzzle gets even more interesting with the use of fast and slow powers. Trying to coordinate how to best use your powers to address the telegraphed invader actions makes this one of the best tactical puzzles in co-op board gaming. My second to last point is the incredible value and variety in the game. It comes with four scenarios that drastically change the rules of the game. It also comes with three different European adversaries for you to face. Each adversary has unique abilities and step-by-step upgrades to provide the exact challenge you want. And as if that wasn't enough, you could even flip the game boards over to get a more challenging but more geographically realistic alternate board setup. All of this gives the game immense replayability, and allows players to adjust the difficulty to the exact level they need. So that's four pros in a row. There has to be a con coming, right? Sorry to disappoint you, but we're going to have a clean sweep in this review. I'm going to end by discussing the amazing variety in the spirits you can play in the game. Each spirit has unique setup rules, special abilities, unique growth and power options, innate powers if they get combos of certain cards, and an entirely unique set of four power cards only they can use. It's a staggering amount of differentiation, and the game really feels almost completely different whether you're sucking people into the ocean with Ocean's Hungry Grasp, or frightening them without hurting them with the Bringer of Dreams and Nightmares. And I haven't even mentioned the ridiculous variety of minor and major powers you can upgrade your spirit with throughout the game culminating in ridiculous superpowers like lightning from the sky or floods to wash their cities away. The variety in how your spirit will play game to game is truly spectacular. This might come as no surprise after five pros in a row, but Spirit Island is one of my top co-op games of all time. I love this game, and both serious and casual players I've introduced it to have loved it as well. The combination of incredible variety, fast gameplay, and deep tactical puzzles is amazing. To keep my thoughts brief, Spirit Island is a co-op that every gamer should have in their collection. As a side note, the expansion Branch and Claw adds a ton of content to the game. I don't play the game anymore without it. No surprise here, but Spirit Island is also excellent when played solo. When I play with just one spirit, I can complete a game in about 30 minutes, which is an amazing amount of gameplay for such a small time invested. Adding in a second spirit makes the puzzle that much tougher and exciting. All my previous recommendations hold for people who want to play Spirit Island solo. It is great. Good gaming, everyone. There are many games based on H.P. Lovecraft's worlds of twisted terrors. Arkham Horror, the living card game, is one of the latest attempts to capture Lovecraft's vision in game form. But could it be the best Lovecraft game of all time?
A campaign begins with each player selecting a character and constructing a deck limited by that character's available class cards. They then play a scenario with several unique elements. Agenda cards that count down to the end of the scenario. Act cards the players must progress through to solve the scenario. Locations they move through and investigate. And an encounter deck of both enemies and dangerous events. At the start of each turn except the first, each player resolves an encounter card and they place one Doom token on the agenda. Players in turn take three actions each. Moving from one location to another, finding clues at locations, attacking enemies there, or paying for and playing cards from their hand. Then enemies on the board engage with players attack them. Players end their turn by drawing a new card and gaining a resource to pay for cards in the future. We're starting with a mixed element, and that's the construction of the player deck in the game. On the positive side, deck construction is fairly simple and straightforward. Each character limits the cards they can use, making your selection not too huge and intimidating. Also, because you stick with one deck over eight scenarios, as you upgrade it, you'll really grow attached to your characters and the abilities they have. On the negative side, there are far fewer strong combos in this game than in something like Magic the Gathering, so hardcore deck builders might not be too interested. Additionally, while leveling up your deck is exciting, sometimes you won't even draw the new cards you've leveled up to, and sometimes they aren't that much more powerful than the basic cards they replace, making leveling up a bit of a mixed bag. We have another mixed point at number four, and that's the Chaos Bag and Chaos Tokens that are used to resolve tests in the game. A variety of positive and negative tokens is placed into the bag, and one is drawn every time you resolve a test. On the positive side, having a bag with multiple tokens gives the difficulty great flexibility. On the negative side, the variance between token results is often very wide, sometimes leading to frustrating skill failures when you thought you would succeed. While this definitely matches the desperate tone of the Lovecraft mythos, it can be very frustrating to spend all your actions on a turn and accomplish nothing. Our third point is a pro, and that's the amazing variety in scenario design. Using the simple formula of unique agendas, act cards, locations, and encounter cards, you get wildly different experiences based on which scenario you're playing. In another nice touch, important rules are introduced as you need them, in simple card form. You don't have to go digging through a scenario book or have hidden information you need to look up in an app to play the game. Now you might think with such a great story that once you play it once or twice it'll become boring, but thankfully that's not the case because of the second pro, the great tactical play in the game. With players having three actions in a row, there's a lot you can do to change the game state and overcome obstacles. You might have to evade a monster to get the clue needed to unlock a door. Hand management is also very engaging. In a clever move, Every card has some skill icons on the left side. Instead of paying the card's cost to play it with an action, you can discard cards to add their icon to a skill test you're taking. Our string of pros continues to the number one spot. Over the course of eight scenarios in a cycle, you'll make major choices that affect the scope of the story, and sometimes you'll fail horribly. My favorite part of the game is that even when you fail, the story still continues in a satisfying way. And there are multiple endings for each campaign. Sure, some of those endings might be your characters being taken over by otherworldly forces or the entire Earth being destroyed, but they are still a satisfying conclusion to the story being 
told. I played a lot of great campaign games like Gloomhaven, where losing a mission means you have to do the entire thing over again, playing for another two hours with no forward progress whatsoever. I love that Arkham LCG changes this, having the story progress in a meaningful way because of your choices and failures, instead of just grinding to a halt. Despite some mixed points at the beginning of this review, Arkham Horror LCG is my favorite Lovecraft game of all time, my favorite card game of all time, and one of the top co-ops I have ever played. The combination of intriguing storylines where your choices actually matter and great tactical gameplay wins every time. If you have any interest in the Lovecraft theme or in adventure games or in story-based games, I give this my highest recommendation. You really need to check it out. I adore this game solo too. It's one of my favorite types of solo games where you don't have to simulate extra players or extra characters, but can play a single character and still have an entirely fulfilling experience. If you haven't played Arkham LCG solo yet, I strongly recommend you give it a try. Good gaming, everyone.